1: Today, I'm doing the kind of interview we enjoy doing so much at RV. I sit down with Balaji Srinivasan. I'm going to be talking to Balaji today about coronavirus and about the global response to coronavirus. Balaji became interested in this topic very early on. He has a lot of science degrees from Stanford, including a PhD where he did most of his work in microbial genomics. Balaji is an extremely accomplished investor, entrepreneur, operating executive, and academic. He was an early investor in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Zcash, and a number of Silicon Valley companies you've probably heard of. Moreover, he was also a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, the legendary Silicon Valley VC firm. Balaji is a very private man, and he doesn't do a lot of television interviews for financial TV. Balaji gives what I think of as the West Coast or Silicon Valley view of this crisis. It's intensely focused on technology, and it's unlike anything we hear coming out of Washington from the policy perspective from either political party. I think you're going to find this conversation incredibly informative and engaging. Thanks for joining us. Balji, thank you for joining us at Real Vision. Hey, thank you for having me. All of you. We have so much to talk about today. You know, you're such an interesting person. You've led such an interesting life in so many different domains, as an angel investor, as an operating executive, uh, and uh, also as an academic at Stanford. We're gonna get to all of that. But first, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be where you are right now.
0: So, um, you know, parents came over from India, and uh, I grew up on Long Island, uh, New York. Uh, you know, you say on Long Island, not. Uh, you know, from Long Island, uh, came out to Stanford as an undergrad, and uh, you know was there for quite a while. Uh, got my BS, MS, PhD in electrical engineering, MS in chemical engineering. Uh, then I taught um, computer science, stats, and bioinformatics at Stanford for a few years. Um, my, my PhD work was in microbial genomics, and I also did you know uh, genetic circuits, clinical genomics, systems biology—basically everything in genomics. I had, I had a finger in that. Um, and then after that, uh, I started a, a genomics company um, with some of my colleagues from Stanford uh, that ended up uh, eventually selling for three hundred seventy-five million dollars. Uh, it was basically a diagnostics company um, that uh, tested for Mendelian diseases like sickle cell, sick fibrosis, Tay Sachs, you know, stuff stuff of that nature. And um, what I was able to do uh, after that is um, I, I became an angel investor. Um, I invested in you know, as early investor in Bitcoin. Uh, Soylent, Superhuman, Lambda School, uh, Cameo, um, Ethereum, Zcash—a bunch of things that have that have done well. Some things you, your audience may have heard of. I was a general partner at Anderson Horowitz, multi-billion-dollar venture capital firm, where um, some of my portfolio companies ended up becoming uh, the basis of our uh, bio, and then our also our crypto funds, which are now large independent funds. Um, I I taught a MOOC course, a massively open online course, with 250,000 students online, so very large. Uh, online course. And then most recently, I took over one of our portfolio companies at Andreessen Horowitz, turned that around, uh, messy situation, which I fixed, so I had to be a turnaround CEO, um, turned that around, sold it to Coinbase, uh, which is an $8 billion cryptocurrency company. I was CTO of Coinbase uh, until last year, and then I took some time off. Uh, and then starting in January, basically, right about when I was about to do my next thing, um, I, I started paying attention to this this coronavirus. Um, and it tweeted about that, and I think helped, uh, you know, among many other people, raise the alarm on that, especially in, in Silicon Valley and the West Coast. Uh, and that brings us to the present day. Yeah, you were very early on coronavirus, and uh, many people know you uh, now from
1: your Twitter feed, uh, the things that you've been tweeting, your analysis, and the framework that you've brought to that. The sort of academic rigor and the background in in biotech uh, kind of converging uh, to give us a, a bit of a sense of the way you think about the world.
0: That's very kind of you. I I basically, you know, I have have a few filters that I was putting on it as as a diagnostics person, um, also certainly as like a VC, as a as a biotech entrepreneur, as an academic who had studied this kind of stuff for a long time. I mean, the, the space is very interdisciplinary, right? You know, there's nobody who's an epidemiologist and a pulmonologist. And you know a cardiologist, and you know this and that, right? So, but from a bioinformatics and genomics and diagnostic standpoint, I think, at least on those angles, I think I I was qualified to comment. Right, and there were certainly no COVID nineteen experts uh, as recently as six months ago. Uh, Yeah, that's right, that's right. And I think uh, you know one of the things about this is it's so broad. Everybody has to you know have some you know if you're if you're doing any kind of economic planning. You're basically gonna to have to be an amateur epidemiologist in the sense that you have to have your personal forecast of how bad the thing is gonna be. And you simply can't just quote trust experts because enough experts disagree with each other that there isn't a you know obvious consensus, number one. And number two is in such a high-stakes situation, you probably wanna do your own diligence to some extent. So um, you know, like like it's it's something where I don't think anybody can possibly be an expert in everything. There's a great article in actually BMJ recently which said, hey, we need to create experts, not hoard expertise, not. You know, pretend that there's a finite pool of it because that person was at one point just an undergrad, read a textbook, and leveled up in the in the space. And you know, like that, may, you might be able to do that in in a day, but in a month, you can actually get reasonably conversant with some of these terms. Um, I'm not saying expert, but I am saying like conversant, um, and I think that's actually a valuable thing to do. Everybody's been talking about serology and IFRs and all this type of stuff. The vocabulary is filtered out there, and I think I think it's actually generally good. Um, yeah, we can get into that.
1: Yeah, so set the stage for us a little bit. Where you were in January, how you came to be aware of it, and uh, what your first exposure to it was.
0: Yeah, so you know, I like Twitter is a hobby of mine, like like it is for many people who uh, who enjoy wasting time in the Uber or whatever, you know. Um, and uh, so I was I was basically following you know this virus like. Twenty other things you might follow in your peripheral vision, you know, it just kind of pops up on your radar. Uh, it, because you know, when you're, you know, when you're an investor or something like that, this is what you do. You just you're tracking a bunch of trends, and you know, many of them fizzle out before they get anywhere. You know, um, but uh, but this one in particular, uh, you know, what what was obviously a huge deal uh, was the lockdown of Wuhan on January twenty third, and the thing is that you know the the chinese government is uh, is not known for committing economic harakiri you know it's not known for committing economic suicide it, it, there's a lot of other things it does that we might disagree with and i might well agree with you in that disagreement but it's not it's not dumb or self-destructive in quite this way and uh, for it to do that that was an unfakeable signal to the world that something very serious was going on that endangered the regime's legitimacy to a greater extent than potentially causing a huge economic crash could. Um, and uh, and so that got my attention. I mean the other thing is, you know, some of my, my friends, you know, here in in tech, we we were talking about this, but um, you know, in in, in Silicon Valley in, in technology, you're dealing with folks, Chinese entrepreneurs who are very competent and often frankly will will defeat you, certainly in China and often, you know, abroad. Uh, because they just execute really, really fast, and they work very hard, and they're smart, um, and they can clone your stuff really fast. But now they've also been able to innovate, and uh, and so we have a healthy respect for them as peer competitors and and folks who we have to give our a game with. I mean, it's possible to win. You know, I think for example, Facebook and Google have uh, have done well against you know um, uh, Tencent and, and Alibaba internationally. It's possible to win. They're not unbeatable. But you have to give your A game or your A plus game, and when we saw that China was having trouble with this, not just trouble, but like overturning society to control it, that made us very concerned because you know we don't have the model of them being you know a a third world country. That you know this is a very sophisticated, very technologically advanced country that's ahead of the United States and the rest of the world in many ways, especially things like WeChat or what have you. And for them to struggle with this. Really had to pay attention, so that was a big trigger, and then I started digging into lurcher.
1: Yeah, that's such an interesting frame—the um, notion that uh, that the Chinese were certainly not about to shut down a city uh, in uh, such a key industrial area if they did not absolutely have to. So, when you begin to see that, at what point did you begin to understand the biology of it uh, and uh, what was happening in, in terms of the actual disease itself?
0: Well, so the first thing I did when after I saw what was going on there is I went to PubMed. And I went to NEGM, New England Journal of Medicine, and The Lancet, and uh, just started reading every article I could on it. This is, I mean, now this space is gigantic. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of papers. It's actually awesome from a research standpoint in that sense. You can't keep up on all of it. There's actually a good site, like uh, I think it's COVID19primer.com, that is um, like a like an automated natural language processing review of of the whole thing. So you can kind of keep on the latest research that way. So you don't have to hand filter it. Um, but I went to New England Journal of Medicine and, and The Lancet. And read the early case studies, you know, on the patient zeros and so on, and some of the stuff is was very concerning. You know, like the the first study um, of uh, uh, somebody who had gotten the coronavirus in the U.S., healthy thirty five year old who was knocked to the ground in um, you know Washington State, and basically was going to die until he was put on remdesivir intravenous, and then he suddenly bounced back. By the way, that prescription. it was you know, to the best of my knowledge of what I can reconstruct from public sources, and I'm open to correction on this, but uh, appears to have been done via right to try laws since it looks like they just worked with state regulators and only notified the FDA rather than actually um, going through the FDA. And that's a very big deal, because it means that maybe the first case in the US was treated with right-to-try laws, as opposed to going through a traditional pathway. That, that's a theme we can come back to, what I call the, the decentralized response, um, as opposed to the centralized response of bottlenecking through the, uh, the, the federal government, for example.
1: Yeah, I think it's so interesting to have you talk about this because you bring what I think of as kind of a West Coast perspective to this—a West Coast thinking, a framework where you know central, the central the centralized authorities are not the ones who are controlling solutions. And it's very entrepreneurial and experimental, which is really an interesting view.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think like um, to, to linger on that for a second. I actually think we're we're now about to actually snap to a new like. Realignment slash political alignment of the U.S. That the North-South divide is, I think, much less relevant. And what actually matters is kind of, you know, broadly East Coast versus West Coast, centralized versus decentralized, uh, modern monetary theory versus Bitcoin, um, the state versus the network, politics versus technology, um, and you know, I think I think that is, uh, you know, really where where things are going to shape up. Um, and uh, you know, that's that's kind of the emerging axis. And what's interesting is I'd sort of put myself, you know, in in some ways dead center on that, uh, even though I'm a West Coast person, because right now I think the emerging political axis in in the US and and probably the world is um, not traditional left right, but uh, antivirus versus pro market. Mm. And, you know, what I mean by that, maybe that's obvious, but let me just drill into that for a second. Antivirus means the total state, the unlimited government. Because you're talking about a government that's, you know, able to put you under house arrest for doing nothing wrong—not just you, but an entire town, an entire city, right—was unprecedented in China on January 23rd. Is now common practice in the West, right? Hundreds of millions of people under so-called lockdown. Um, so, okay, house arrest for anybody, you know, no, no due process. And I am saying that these extraordinary measures may actually hold back the virus, but. They will not be given up by governments at the end. You know, the first lockdown may be, you know, to protect you from the virus, and the nth lockdown may be to protect you from each other. Um, especially if, like, you know, a huge chunk of people are out of work, if there's civil unrest, or something like that. That's, you know, I can't say it's a hundred percent probability, but there's there's some percentage probability of that. So you have you have the total state, you have lockdowns, you have price controls, you have um, border controls, you have. Um, You know, the ability to tell people that they need to get tested, for example, in China, uh, you know, that that you have to have forehead thermometers and all these scans. So like repeals effectively on search and seizure. So lots and lots of due process goes out the window because you're basically in a wartime situation against uh, a virus. I think, you know, people have been talking about this. Is this a recession? Is this a depression? And I think those are fundamentally bad metaphors for what this is. This is the first successful invasion of the United States of America in modern times, by a virus, and uh, or really by anything, but really an invasion is probably the best metaphor because tens of thousands of people are being killed. You know, millions are being sickened. Um, you know, like actual physical production is being shut down involuntarily, not due to fully for economic reasons, but to physical reasons. People are getting sick and and, and dying and, and leaving their posts or, or getting sick enough that, for example, meatpacking plants want to shut down. So so on the one end is this total state. And on the other end is the kind of the, the market. And uh, you know that's where the kind of anti-lockdown protests and a lot of that sentiment comes from. Very understandably, you've got 25 million people out of work. And so this is a reaction to price controls, to seizures of masks, to bailouts, to all of this type of stuff. And that's kind of the libertarian-ish end of the spectrum, the freedom end, the privacy end, uh, the you know don't tread on me end, et cetera. And that's kind of the axis, I think, that's, that's there, not just in, in the US, but the whole world. Um, and I think that's kind of dead center of where East versus West Coast is. And where do you see yourself on that continuum as you look at this problem? My preferred strategy. So you know, it's interesting. Uh, A lot of people are are thinking about this as a trade-off between, um, you know, like how many cases you get with the virus and how long your lockdown is, Um, and you know, with the with the implication being that you'd get fewer cases for the virus the longer your lockdown, or vice versa, that economic damage and viral damage were um, were inversely correlated with each other. But I actually. Don't think that's the case. I think that when all is said and done, um, the countries that have the short, sharp, competent lockdowns will have much less economic, uh, less economic damage and less viral damage. Um, so, New Zealand or you know, like actually China, I think on net is going to turn out uh, to to have a relatively better outcome than many other countries. Um, you know, potentially, you know, so certainly Taiwan, South Korea, et cetera, even these Asian countries that are having second waves are, are jumping on top of it very aggressively. And I think that model of, you know, aggressively jump on this thing, don't just let it get to 100%, um, you know, drive new cases to zero, and then gradually open up with testing, tracing, isolating, such that, you know, you don't just like let a case happen. Until you've got a cure or a vaccine, then you deploy that. That's a New Zealand strategy. That seems to me to be a, a smart strategy. The opposite of that is just kind of, you know, <laughs> what I call "let it rip." And uh, you know, my my uh, my friend from Twitter, you know, John Stokes, uh, calls it uh, the great YOLO. Um, and you know, that's kind of what we're what we're defaulting into, which is this sort of disorganized thing where we kind of do a halfway lockdown. People people, understandably yell. I don't want to make light of them yelling. They're losing jobs and livelihoods. But then what right. they're going to find, I think, is they come back and half half the business isn't there already because there people will social distance even without a lockdown. And, and then more business will disappear because people will get sick and then they'll stay home at home. And now you've got kind of both the virus and the economic destruction and kind of worse for both worlds. Unfortunately, I think that's where countries in the West, many of them, are headed.
1: Right. You know, And to pick up on that, where do you think we are now? We're recording here at the end of April. Where do you think we are in terms of the state of play with this virus right now in the United States and globally?
0: Well, so there's a really good site called uh, COVID. Um, so there's two sites that I look at, right? Um, the first is covidtracking.com and all the sites that use that data. Uh, and covidtracking.com is looking at tests um, cases, deaths, etc. And it's a really good project by Alexis Madrigal and, and company. And basically, you know, they were just finding that the CDC wasn't able to track tests. So they went and did it themselves. Massive props to them. Um, and that site is, you know, updated very frequently, very labor intensive effort, uh, and it's pulled by a bunch of other folks. And then if you go to a website called covidcharts.com, basically uh, you know, you have to wait till the end of the day. But the new cases per day and new deaths. All right, so looking at you know April twenty seventh, it does look like it's down at least as of you know this this morning or whatever. But um, you know you have to wait a few days to see that. In general, it doesn't look like we have massively decelerated yet. Uh, you know, it doesn't it doesn't seem like the deaths or cases have come down. People are like, oh, it happened in New York City and, and so on. Well, actually, it's just. You know, it happened in New York City, and it came down in New York City. But then it's it's in 49 other places, right? Um, you know, 49 other states. So uh, I, I think we're just at the beginning of this thing, uh, unfortunately. And I think that people who think, oh, the pandemic is over, oh, it only happened in New York City, it's it's going to come to their town potentially. Um, and how so. do you think about the about the trajectory of the virus right now in, in the
1: United States, just from a disease impact standpoint?
0: Yeah. So, so one thing that, um, so a few things I think are clear, and uh, let me let me at least give you my worldview on it because there's some very big variation in people's thinking on this. First, is um, I'm pretty skeptical of the serology work that came out of Stanford and USC and others. I wrote a long medium post critiquing it, and so did a bunch of other people, uh, because I think the false positive rates of those assays are very high. Why is mm-hmm. that important? There's basically being this thesis. Um, that oh a bunch of people have already gotten it because they've already gotten it, it's already spread a lot that means we're close to the end we're already at twenty percent or whatever uh, you know thirty percent just a little bit more and we're almost done with this and uh, the reason I think that's unlikely is it would mean that this virus is way more contagious than other pandemics um, you know like H one N one or the Spanish flu took you know more than a year to get around the world H one N one was in the age of modern jet travel. Um, and so this would have to be spreading really fast. I think that's unlikely. And uh, I also think that um, those kinds of calculations don't really contend with the second major metric that I think is important, which is uh, this guy. Um, uh, his name is John I think it's John Burns something from the finance. John Burns Murdoch from the Financial Times. Uh, J. burn Murdoch, B-U-R-N, not B-U-R-N-S. Uh, so that guy has... Um, a very useful set of graphs that is uh, something I've been talking about since March or April. And they went took that next level. And they've created graphs of the spike in hist- uh, death rate over the historical average, so the spike in all-cause mortality okay, right. a- across a dozen countries. And the thing is that um, you know I start from the premise that this is the best test. Unfortunately, COVID-19 has now gotten to the scale that it is a very significant cause of death in more than a dozen countries around the world. Uh, actually, way more than a dozen, but at least a dozen for which we have good data. And um, because it is at that scale, uh, that means that you can compare it to past years, and you can see how many excess deaths there are. And, and the reason that's important is um, death is, uh, is well, from a, from a diagnostic standpoint, I don't mean this in a callous way, but um, you know, death has high test-retest reliability. It can yes. be diagnosed outside a lab. Uh, you don't really have false positives and so on and so forth, right? So lots of the issues that bedevil other kinds of diagnostic tests are not there with death, right? And um, it's also something where you have probably the best records that you might have. You know, if you, if you talk about, uh, oh, does somebody have pneumonia? Right. the diagnosis of pneumonia will probably differ from country to country in terms of how much, you know, like like what what a doctor would call pneumonia. But death doesn't differ from country to country, so it's the most consistent across space and time. It's easier to diagnose, so it's really the best stat. Un- unfortunately, and uh, those stats are showing just a pileup of bodies. Um, you know, there's a huge surge of mortality in not just Italy but Spain and and uh, a bunch of other countries, including you know New York City. Um, and J. byrne has that. So that's the second set of charts that I look at, the all-cause mortality charts.
1: This was something that came into yeah. sort of uh, the broader consciousness, I think, uh, yesterday, uh, where effectively there were some articles saying that all-cause mortality uh, seemed to suggest that the death rate from COVID was twice as high as was being reported from other diagnostic criteria, which is obviously an enormous gap.
0: Well, so yeah, so I was just saying, though, that... Uh, and not definitely not to thump my own chest, uh, but because uh, this is you know. But if uh, if you look at my Twitter, we've been talking about this since March, um, and pulling up analyses that were kind of um, you know. So there's a guy Dell Analuca, who's doing these analyses in Italy. Uh, there's another guy David Bessier. So kind of. Tech Twitter or whatever has been kind of digging into this for a while now. Um, and so we had already kind of had the numbers to show that spike in all-cause mortality like a month ago, but great credit to John Byrne Murdoch because he he's taken it next level and actually gone and pulled it for even more countries and gone the government stats, uh, you know, in a bunch of different places to kind of solidify the analysis. You know, so so let's call that, you know, basically just anchoring the severity of the disease. Now, who is it severe for? The short answer is it's very severe for a old people and uh, B, meaning like you know, 65 plus in particular. Uh, but as you get older, just risk increases. And B, people with pre-existing conditions. Okay, but the second bit is should not be that reassuring, especially to Americans, because they have a pretty high rate of obesity and heart disease, and you know, so on and so forth. It's a, it's right. an amazing like number, unfortunately, of Americans who have one or more of those of those comorbidities. So people who are like, oh, you know, like that's not me, and they're. 53 and overweight, well, they're kind of in a relatively higher risk category. And you can look at the stats on it. It differs from study to study, but the CDC had uh, some numbers on this. And uh, they did a a whole demographic workup. The other thing, though, is that it's not that people are immune when they're younger. Um, You know, Something like, if I recall correctly, 25% of hospitalizations uh, were for those under 50. So 75% were over 50, but 25% were under 50. And that's not that's not zero percent, you know. Um, and uh, so there's, you know, like some of the stats, other stats I've seen is something like thirteen um, percent hospitalization rate for people eighteen to forty-four. Uh, and I know people who've had been very sick from it, just kind of qualitative evidence to buttress that, you know. And um, you know, by the way, on, on the topic of anecdote, by the way, people will say, well, the plural of anecdote is not data, and I would agree, except at qualitative feedback. Often allows you to formulate a quantitative hypothesis, mm. uh, and that's why it's actually super important in, in tech startups. Just to digress for a second, to talk to customers as well as look at your dashboards, because you talk to a customer and they say, "Oh, I had trouble logging in." Then you put up a new dashboard, to see how many people had trouble logging in. You see a thousand people had trouble logging in, so the quote anecdote led you to collect data. Right. That right. So so we should never like discount the value of a patient study. That's actually really, really important because it lets us maybe look at things from an angle we weren't considering and then collect data to see if that, that observation is real. Uh, so point basically being, A, I think it's quite severe, uh, B, it's severe in the elderly and people with pre-existing conditions, C, that doesn't mean the younger people have clean ceiling of it, and D, something else I'm concerned about is uh, folks who were so-called asymptomatic. Uh, Many of them appear to be not asymptomatic, but pre-symptomatic, meaning that, you know, you do follow up on them and suddenly you're seeing CT scan uh, of their lungs is actually showing evidence of viral damage. Uh, And uh, now, you know, they start coughing or or they have other kinds of symptoms. And so for at least some people, the virus is like a slow burn, Mm. which is bad, right? Because kind of hiding, you know? And uh, so, you know, there's there's other things where you know the the sheer number of different kinds of symptoms this thing is causing in in, in folks. We're still kind of getting the table on this. People are reporting strokes. They're reporting weird lesions in the toes. uh, You know, whether this is due to simply just the scale of it causing lots of rare cases, whether it is due to you know it actually like mutating and there being different strains during different things, as some people have speculated. Um, We don't really know yet. I I would just I just treat this thing as being fairly severe and not something you want to mess with, and so I think the strategy of like a Singapore or New Zealand is probably right. Okay, I know that was a long answer, but go ahead. I'm so you know I'm so glad you brought that up. There's you know
1: the two sort of things that I was trying to reconcile from yesterday was the report of the you know double all cause mortality based on some of the analyses that we were just discussing, and the second point was there was a study coming out of the state of Ohio, I believe, about. Uh, testing prisoners showing that 96 percent uh, of the prisoners they tested were in fact asymptomatic, and trying to reconcile those two propositions: on the one hand, something that would suggest the disease is much worse uh, on the surface than it appears, and then the second right. uh, suggesting the opposite. And it is a very complex uh, problem to get our heads around.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, you know my 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 speculation is that those asymptomatic prisoners, many of them, will develop symptoms. Uh, you know, I, I tweeted this a little while ago, but. Uh, in a follow-up study of um, very the different kinds of follow-up studies of the asymptomatics, uh, like 27%, 54%, in different studies, develop symptoms at some point. Yeah, I think that's what's going to happen with those prisoners that they're not going to remain asymptomatic indefinitely. Not all, but but many of them.
1: So, one of the things that you talk about on Twitter is the viral funnel. Can you explain that a bit?
0: Yeah. So, you know, I tweeted about this in March, but basically, there's lots of different efforts, you know, flying around, and where do you want to help? So. You know ideally where it saves the most lives given your skills so um, you know the funnel model comes from like startups right you know you've got uh, a bunch of leads at the top of the funnel these are people who might you know be out there and then some of them click and land on your website and some of them click a little bit more and they end up in a cart and then some of them all the way convert and and you know so on right and they maybe they renew subscription or they churn uh, it might seem like trivial startup lingo but you can apply the same thing to the virus right you've got this You know, group of healthy people out there. Then they're exposed. uh, Then some of them get infected. Some 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 get sick. Some of them actually die or recover. That's similar to like the SEIR models, you know, epidemiological models, and so on. And so you can think of interventions at different portions of the viral funnel. Uh, For example, like you know, for healthy people, masks, social distancing, lockdown, vaccines, uh, tests. Those kind of uh, you know are things you can do on healthy people. Um, you know, when you talk about if someone's exposed, you do more tests. You do CT scan. You do, uh, you know, not just PCR, but you might do you know sequencing or whatever if you think they're being exposed to you know a strain that you want to know about. Um, if they're infected, then you'd actually isolate them. You need, uh, you know, you need hospital beds or, or, or some kind of quarantine you know area. Uh, you're gonna potentially need drugs. Um, If they're really sick, then hospitalization, PPE for MDs and nurses, and if they're recovered, maybe serology tests. And so now once you kind of have that funnel, uh, when you say, okay, I'm doing PPE, okay, you're actually at at like stage four of the funnel, right? Because you're helping sick people um, because you're giving PPE to MDs and nurses. Oh, but maybe you might help at the top of the funnel as well, because some of those masks could go to people who are healthy. So in this fashion, you can kind of Think about where you want to allocate resources, and really, the best thing you could do is stop healthy people from getting sick in the first place. And so that's why, for you know, the last few weeks of March and early April, um, I was helping out uh, Jeremy P. Howard, who launch masks for all which is very effective in basically shifting policy on this where the surgeon general was at first saying oh you know people you shouldn't wear masks and then literally recorded himself making a video <laughs> of wearing a mask which is good i'm glad i'm glad they turned around on this right but essentially that common sense intervention is something that uh, i think we think will significantly reduce the spread of the disease. So that's the idea of the viral funnel is to prioritize different things, interventions based on the impact on the funnel.
1: You know, I mean the frightening thing about hearing you discuss that is it sounds as though that sort of thinking hasn't broadly taken place at scale yet. It sounds as though the basic sort of staging and framework of this is still at the position where it's a novel idea.
0: Yeah. So you know the thing that has been concerning to me about this uh, this whole way is this whole thing is real real drive. Where you know the folks with scientific, technical, mathematical, you know, management backgrounds are not in politics, and they're generally not in the media either, at least as writers. And um, you know, so what that means is the folks who are talking about what to do and the folks who are responsible for making the decisions are just. Not there's there's not a critical mass of of folks you know who know what a virus is for example right um, and uh, and so like you know you just have you just, I mean it, it's not it's not a partisan thing by the way it's the federal bureaucracy it is the mayor of New York and the White House it is the FDA and the CDC it is uh, you know like both you know all, all major media outlets have had just the flu type stuff and and not just just the flu but you know, masks don't work and then masks work. Just face plan after face plan on this. Uh, so so I think uh, yeah, i'm <laughs> I'm pretty concerned about the fact that folks who I think of as competent, are outside of the loop on making decisions on this or are doing kind of rear-wheel drive, right? You're tweeting frantically to try to get the attention of somebody as opposed to just being in the position to make the decision yourself. You know, another suggestion that's getting a fair
1: amount of traction uh, is this notion of immunity passports. This is something that's built out into the mainstream media at this point. Could you explain that concept and tell us where we are with regard to being able to actually execute
0: on that? Yeah, so, so that's something... You know, basically, immunity passports are proof of health. That could help reopen the world. Whether it's based on serology testing, which is, hey, do you have antibodies like immunity in that sense, or some other kind of test. Uh, essentially, you know, for example, in Asia, people have forehead thermometers and they stand outside of buildings and they kind of scan people as they walk by. And that's not a perfect test um, because people can be asymptomatic and still pass and so on. But it gives you subsignal, and so you can start thinking about defense in depth, right? You have, uh, for example, wearables, like your Fitbit, your URA. There's studies going into whether that gives you signal. There's your forehead thermometers. There's certainly your self-report. There is the digital diagnosis of whether you're close to somebody else. You know, contact tracing, were you close to another positive? Um, Can we send you a signal on that basis, which, you know, smartphone manufacturers can do now? I know it's Orwellian, but they can. Um, You know, another uh, test is these uh, kind of thermal scans from afar. There's um, like these really high throughput CT scans that the Chinese have where it's really fast and they can do a bunch of them quickly. There's uh, obviously PCR, there's you know sequencing. And so you start to have uh, defense in depth, right? And something I, I, I tweeted about, I said, you know, China's going to build the third great wall as a function of this. There's the great wall, the great firewall. They're building the great bio wall of China, um, like a gigantic biodefense wall uh, of testing. And other kinds of things, you know, eventually vaccines just fortify themselves in many different ways, so that the virus breaks through one fortification, it doesn't break through another, and you have another. And so that's, I think, a good mental model also for proof of health or these immunity passports, where um, you know you have a series of tests that are done on somebody. And you know, in China, the way they're doing it is green code, yellow code, red code. Your WeChat has you know either green, yellow, or red, uh, corresponding to your basic your current virus status, right? So green is you're fine. Yellow, you've been exposed and need to be quarantined. You can't travel between cities and so on. And red, you're known to be infected. Um, and so that digital status is contagious just like, you know, the viruses. If a red walked into a crowd of twenty greens, they would all turn yellow. For example, right? At least that's my, you know, that's one's understanding of it. So that's the kind of stuff that all goes into something like this immunity passport. And frankly, in, in a sense, it already existed uh, because you know you need vaccination certificates. To immigrate to a country, right? The U.S. has needed that for a long time. You know, you you know, if you Google vaccination certificate, so this is kind of like that. You know, a vaccination cert is, are you going to bring a deadly virus? You know, into our shores. That's the same reason they ask. You know, are you bringing in snails? Are you bringing, you know, like animals and stuff like that? They'll always ask those kinds of questions, you know, the agricultural things, because so they want to know: Are you bringing something that can reproduce of its own accord and maybe get out of control? Of you know, something that has no natural predators, all the type of stuff, on unbalanced ecosystems. Um, and I think that's uh, that's what this is. It's like a vaccination cert. Um, it's like a, it's like one of those questions about whether you're bringing in animals, um, except it's applied to a virus. And uh, except, and it's also done, obviously, in much more intrusive and real-time way. And on the treatment side of this uh, equation, you talked a bit uh, about the uh, expanding the right to
1: try. Tell us a little <clears throat> bit about what that is and why it's relevant for getting the kind of treatments that we need to see.
0: Yeah. So you know, what the FDA did in February was basically catastrophic. It's now known that they prevented emergency use authorizations for tests. And in so doing, um, turned a containable epidemic into a catastrophe. Uh, you know, they basically what what essentially happened was labs that could have run tests that would have shown that the coronavirus epidemic was actually it was spreading, they were prevented from running tests by the FDA for a critical 28-day period, um, and only really allowed to run on, on the 29th. Once the tests actually started to run, it was clear that we had a massive outbreak on our hands. And so, where you know things things might have been nipped in the bud, because what happened was the lack of testing gave everybody a false sense of security over the course of February, when the fire was still you know at a relatively early stage. So it's my point. My point is that was you know that's potentially the greatest failure in the history of not just the FDA, maybe the greatest, one of the greatest failures ever in the history of you know the United States. Cost the country trillions of dollars, m- tens of millions of jobs. Simply because you know bureaucrats didn't approve tests fast enough, and that's just something that's perceptible to people. It's a it's a it's a catastrophe on such a scale that's perceptible. Most other times that something is denied for multiple sclerosis or or you know like colon cancer, it's not visible on that scale, right? It's not something where everybody has a stake in it. Where you know like it's it's super. uh, There's lots of eyes on it. Um, It's more deniable. So uh, what? You know, with respect to the FDA, there's been pads to route around it in the past. Uh, and critically, those pads don't say no regulation, they just say a different regulator to put some competitive pressure on this regulator. So some of them, for example, compounding pharmacies are one where, you know, pharmacies, uh, pharmacists have some discretion in order to kind of mix drugs together to get a new drug, off little prescription by MDs. You can have a drug that's approved for purpose A that a doctor in their own discretion can prescribe for purpose B. Uh, there's been a CLIA and clinical labs where you can um, basically go and uh, have individual labs that are um, not necessarily FDA regulated, but they're regulated by a, a different agency also under HHS, uh, under CMS. Uh, so HHS is a parent. It's got FDA and it's got CMS. Under CMS is something called CLIA. And CLIA works with state regulators to approve clinical labs, which can roll out tests. Um, and then, of course, there's other countries. Uh, and so each of these are pathways that are outside of um, you know the FDA and the FDA wants to shut them down usually. They've been kind of waging a war against lab tests and compounding pharmacies and so on for a while. Uh, right to try is yet another pathway outside the FDA where basically people have, as it sounds like, the right to try a drug and they just have state regulators sign off in it and then under some circumstances give notice to the FDA because um, the procedure for actually getting um, you know, approval to use a drug is actually extremely bureaucratic normally and the person is dying. And so now you just give a notice to the FDA rather than going through that whole rigmarole. Uh, one thing also, by the way, a lot of the FDA stuff, when it blocks things, it causes failure to apply rather than necessarily failure to get approved. And mm-hmm. those are similar in outcome, but failure to apply is less measurable and because it's top of the funnel. It's such a complicated and time-consuming process that people don't even put in an application, and therefore, it's it's harder to detect the full impact of what it is they're doing, if that makes sense. Because um, many of these companies and and labs that were turned down for uh, these these authorizations, the EUAs, uh, made out of file formal applications, they just got informal feedback that you know okay they can't they can't get one at a time. So what does this have to do with the expanded right to try? So right now there's all these different pathways outside the FDA for uh, for drugs via off label, for labs via CLIA, uh, for drugs again via compounding pharmacies, um, for pretty much everything via going internationally like medical tourism. Um, an expanded right to try would basically just expand all of this, and one model would be something where these, you know, uh, these, like, for example, this Western States Compact, right? California, Oregon, Washington, and now also Colorado and Nevada have joined this, okay? So this Western States Compact now could basically say, look, we're going to um, have Stanford, UW, uh, Berkeley, UCSF, Um, and Cedar sinai which are all very legit, you know, basically on the West Coast, right? Maybe throw in, you know, um, uh, UC Boulder, you know, something like that. And uh, those are universities that will work with state regulators to approve drugs, diagnostics, uh, you know, and uh, vaccines and what have you. you. You do the same thing for this Upper Midwest Compact, where the Mayo Clinic, is working with you know the local regulators to approve things. And the same thing in the Northeast. You have Harvard and MIT and the same thing in the New York kind of tri-state area compact, you have Columbia and Cornell. And by doing this now suddenly you've got four or five, six uh, effectively regulators um, in uh, you know each of these regions has like 80 million people or something fairly big, right? They're like essentially European countries, but now there's comp- competition for the FDA, and you're not giving up on safety, you're not giving up on quality. Uh, what you've got though is are folks who have an incentive to balance quality with speed and 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 with cost, which really really matter in a pandemic, very obviously so. But you know, like it's also true at other times. It's just not not where everybody's eyes are on it. Are you
1: optimistic about our ability to actually execute on this in a reasonable time frame in a way that can get actual results for this particular crisis, or is this something that we're going to look at for potentially mitigating future? So,
0: expanded right to try would be, if not a silver bullet, certainly a very, very useful bullet that could be tried right now that would unlock a lot of biomedical innovation. And I think, frankly, it's the only way, uh, yes, the horse has left the barn in in some ways. You know, the fire is going to burn for quite a while. But um, it's, you know, we need to, even if this fire burns the US more than it burns other countries, and it looks like it will, um, we still need fire hoses. So we we have to unlock that biomedical innovation, even if you know it, I shouldn't say too little too late because it, it you know it would be great if this had been done five years ago. You know, five years ago, for example, the Apple Watch had a bunch of diagnostic grade stuff in it that the FDA forced them to either take out or nerf. Um, this is reported in the Wall Street Journal, for example. And so had that been in there, had for example, 23andMe, the FDA ran a campaign against them. Uh, if, if we had 100 million uh, people with genome sequences, maybe we'd know the pharmacogenomics and immunogenomics of this thing, right? Um, so, you know, yes, it would have been much better had we done this five years ago, 10 years ago. But today is, 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 is better than never. And uh, that'll at least give us the technology where in six months, we'll be in a very, even a few months, we'll be in a very different place if you have right to try, expanded right to try.
1: Yeah, and it seems as though there's demand for change right now. Maybe that's the yes, one, uh, sort of optimistic that we can come to. That there is a sense of, uh, of of needing to do things differently, of finding new solutions. I think that when people look uh, at the efficiency uh, with which China has handled some of their containment efforts, obviously we're talking about very different cultures with very different views of individual liberty and human rights. But I still think there is a sense of that there is, you know, just the technological solutions that are being applied, the speed of innovation. Yeah, uh, it seems as though we have a way to go on this.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, 1950s America had higher state capacity than 1950 China, but 2020 China is has better has higher state capacity than twenty twenty America. That's right. obvious to everybody on the world stage. At least for something like this, if you're familiar with the with the Maginot Line, right from World War Two, you know that was something where the French developed it for World War One, uh, or rather after the experience of World War One, you know to you know stop the Germans from coming in in the same way. You know the trench warfare, that have fortifications, and the Germans said okay, and they just went around it with with the yeah. blitzkrieg, right? And in the same way, what we are learning is that the the two oceans you know, the Atlantic and the Pacific that protected the US, the aircraft carriers and, you know, the F-16s and this extraordinarily expensive and gigantic and well-trained and equipped military just got completely bypassed by the virus. Like, you know, the virus's ultimate asymmetric threat. Now to be clear, I'm not saying it's engineered or anything like that. I'm just saying that it just completely invalidated all those defenses and has literally you know, basically taking out aircraft carriers. I don't know if you saw that report from earlier this this month, but uh, you know, that uh um captain of the aircraft carrier is like, hey, all of my you know, sailors are getting sick from this. Um, you know, like some of them will die if they don't get treatment. And, you know, let's take them take them off, otherwise everyone's gonna get sick. So that's like, to my knowledge, the first thing that has taken out an aircraft carrier and I saw another follow-up report that says something like 40 naval warships have had this problem so um, so that's a really big deal because it means that in a sense the US military is like this giant Maginot line versus the virus and you know for all the talk of WMD everyone had focused on nuclear weapons or like Assad with chemical weapons looks like every I mean not every regime in the world is nice. Um, You know, a lot of folks are looking at this and looking at, okay, well, you know, like the biological stuff really seems to bypass US defenses. So that's like a dangerous, you know, two or three or four year out consequence of of a lot of this.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. It it feels as though it's not just software that's eating the world, as uh, your colleague Mark Andreessen has suggested, but also the framework of software development, the framework of competitiveness that's brought to us more broadly from the software world is eating the
0: world. Yep. That's right. I think basically the only kinds of states that survive. I think it all converges on something I call the network state, where, um, so for example, over the last ten years or so, every company had to become a software company or die. And frankly, actually, that's that's actually happening now, like in a in an extremely in a way that I didn't expect it to happen. But the way it happened over the last ten years was. Okay, blockbuster video—you don't go online. Okay, Netflix kills you. Okay, Hollywood—you don't go online. Well, iTunes and again Netflix and so on kill you, and and so on and so forth. for Industry after industry, like taxis, hotels, whatever, right? Um, and now it's something where restaurants that didn't get with DoorDash are dead, right? Um, you know, like uh, higher ed—any college that didn't invest in it, Coursera and Udacity and so on—is is really out of luck, and and so on. Essentially, what happened was. Anybody who didn't invest in the future um, doesn't even have a leg to stand on because it was just all internet, you know, or, or die, right? And um, I think that that's now going uh, happening at the level of countries. And this is something where I think of as um, what I think of as the network state. Basically, you either have um, countries that are run by basically people who I consider the ability level of a top tech CEO, for example, Lee Shenlong of Singapore. Um, you know, he was like a mathematician at Cambridge. You know, was the Wrangler there, like top his year. Mm-hmm. Um, in Estonia, there's a guy Tõmas Ilves who isn't isn't running the country and was actually president, who's so never, uh, to my knowledge, prime minister. But he was a computer scientist out of Princeton and responsible for um, Estonia's adoption of internet technologies. One of the bigger influences on it, uh, and helped modernize them and make them into the force that they are today. Very high strength to weight ratio. Um, in Israel, Netanyahu, you know he has political issues now, but he is mit MIT graduate and certainly um, an intelligent person. And I think you know if you if you go down the list, the folks who are kind of like this, who are who are tech savvy enough to use software and um, and engineering uh, are the ones who who will do well. And on the other side of it, I think uh, so that's that's kind of a state getting the qualities of a company. The flip side is a company getting the qualities of a state. And so now, you know, for example, companies can issue digital currencies or trying to, you know, Facebook's trying to do Libra. And what I think is going to happen with Facebook and Google and uh, Amazon and YouTube and so on and so forth is they're basically going to step into the gap uh, where the um, WHO and UN and so on, they're, they're, those are kind of fading and leaving the stage in many ways because there's a loss of international confidence in them. And so the trustworthy multinational institutions are going to be these giant tech companies, Mm. Um, because you know they have billions of users around the world. They have the balance sheets. They're kind of in this sort of diplomat kind of role where they have to maintain relations with lots of different countries, Uh, and uh, they they're, they're frankly more competent than than. You know, WHO or UN. Who would you trust to implement contact tracing? You know, is it gonna be Apple or Google, not not really the UN. Maybe WHO, but but they're not they're not gonna be able to code it or ship it on a billion iOS devices or, or Android devices. So well, let, me, um, let me just push yeah, back yeah. a little bit yeah. on that.
1: So we you know we we all love big tech companies, those of us who are passionate about technology. <laughs> sure. Um, and um, and but the question is, you know, look. The, the counter argument could be, look, these are not these are not states. these are not uh, organizations that have the consent of the govern. they are there to make money for their shareholders. and some might say even more cynically they're there to make money for management. And uh, look, these do not have the argument would go. the interest uh, of the broader population at heart, there's a reason that we have governments and not private. Corporations that run the world. One could have made this argument in the 19th century, uh, and certainly in the 20th century, about corporations being more effective, more nimble, more technologically savvy. Uh, and the history there is not a very strong one when you look at things like environmental pollution and those sorts of things. Why should we have trust that big tech companies have the interest of the broader population at heart?
0: So three three points there. So first is. Uh, I don't think one should have implicit trust. Actually, I'm a big fan of crypto and decentralization and right. end-to-end encryption, and so on and so forth. I definitely think we need to check on the power of large tech companies, which can do censorship, deplatforming, demonetization, uh, and, and yes, certainly abuse power for management. So let me let me put that on the table first. Um, second is I, I do think that with that said, big tech companies are actually in many ways more accountable than let's say the UN or um, you know WHO because. You know, first of all, they are. You know, you are a shareholder. Uh, you know, yes, you can become a shareholder of those. You can't become easily a shareholder of the UN or the WHO. Number one. Uh, number two, you're um, you're often a customer of these companies, and a large customer can you know raise a stink or what have you. Uh, number three is, um, I, I actually feel that it's more transparent in the sense of you know the process by which a WHO bureaucrat is appointed is not. Um, it's you know how much democratic accountability really is there. You know, you vote. For a president who appoints somebody, who appoints somebody, it, it gets pretty dilute at that point. You're talking one over 300 million of a vote for a, you know, this for that. It's effectively zero, right? Um, whereas, you know, you, you know, I, I think that uh, if you actually want to affect that process, you actually go join the WHO or write about it, uh, and then it's similar to your influence on Apple, where you just join Apple and write about it. So in terms of practical influence, from that standpoint, and then finally, there's the aspect of just competence, you know, like. Ultimately, the proof is in the pudding. If you know, I'm not saying, and I should be clear about this. I'm not saying that centralized governments are necessarily incompetent. In fact, there was a period from 1933 to 1969, uh, roughly Hoover Dam, Manhattan Project, Apollo Project, right, where you know, in that period, the United States government got all the best talent and all the best scientists and was able to do things that no private sector company could do. And I think I would argue that's because technology in the mid-20th century, greatly favored centralization. It was mass media, and it was mass production. Um, it was mass society. And you basically couldn't make something unless a bunch of people were in a factory all working together. So you, you needed ideologies uh, that, that supported those technologies. And then if you go both forward and backward in time, you go more and more decentralized. Like 1950 is kind of like a, a mirror moment. And uh, you know, where you have so, for example, 1950, you have one telephone company, and you have two superpowers, and you have three television stations. So it's like the the centralized century. And then you go forward in time, and you get um, cable television, and then you get uh, the internet, uh, and then you start getting the explosion of things after the internet. It's like the internet's reopening the frontier. If you go backwards in time from 1950, you know, pre World War One, and then you go to 1890, and the frontier reopens as you go backwards in time. And then you get robber barons, and so I think in many ways. Uh, our future is like our past. This has been something I've been writing about for a long time, and it's jumbled. It's not necessarily in exactly the same order. But guess what? We just kind of replayed this, or, or, or replaying the Spanish flu. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's a little bit out of order. You know, robber baron, Spanish flu. There's other things, by the way. In the 1830s, there was a whole thing about private banking. Do you know about that? Yes, of course. Yeah. Okay. Banker. Great. Yeah. Private banking era, right? So that's come back too with crypto. You know. And so, essentially, um, it's you know, almost like you have exactly.
1: this sort of sinusoidal wave of centralization and decentralization that continues to alternate. I'm curious about okay. what you think about the potential to do in some of these uh, in, in in an open source way, perhaps in a way that is not as proprietary and that doesn't belong to you know pick the large um, tech company of your choosing.
0: Yeah, so so that's actually what I I do care about that a lot, and I think um, that uh, you know what. What blockchains allow us to do, and it's not just blockchains, but let's just say decentralized technologies, okay? Um, Give us a primer on what that means for people who aren't as familiar with technology. Totally, totally. So um, most people probably who are listening to this are familiar with the concept of open source, right, which is source code that you can download and inspect and look at, and replicate and usually modify and what have you, right? And uh, the fact that you can do that gives you more confidence in its correctness and so on and so forth, right? Actually, okay.
1: I'm going to say something. I'm not sure Go that ahead. most people are familiar with the open source movement. I think most okay. people who, who are passionate about technology are familiar with the open source movement, but this is a okay. very different model than most people who have iOS or Android phones, for example, are used to thinking about.
0: So ah, explain yeah. a little bit about that, yeah. Sure, sure. So it's funny because, um, okay, well, uh, it first, iOS and Android are very heavily based on open source technologies. Android itself is essentially Linux, Mm. though they have closed up pieces of it effectively over time. It's basically like copyright, almost. You know, if you can just take um, content, images, music files, and mix them together freely, it's easy to make something cool and creative in a mashup. If you have to go and get a bunch of license agreements from people, that's massive friction, and it means you're just not going to do it because it's so hard to do it. It's that you just don't do it, right? Um, and so, so that's kind of what open source is like. It's it's basically something where you can look at code, take snippets, be inspired by it, understand what's going on, get smarter. Um, and then share it with others. Yeah. Uh, you
1: know, one metaphor for this might be: uh, we were talking earlier about uh, BMJ, the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine. <clears throat> one metaphor might be the idea of peer-reviewed journals are open-source in the sense that the information is freely shareable. You can comment on it. You can replicate or attempt to
0: replicate it. You can analyze it. Right. Though you know, not all of those journals—they don't. Uh, there's a whole movement for so-called reproducible research. So not every journal article is quote reproducible research, but it's getting better over mm-hmm. time. Okay so now this may be it, it, for for an audience that is new to open source the following what I'm about to say may be too much of a leap but I'll just go there anyway so what blockchains give you is kind of the next step after open source which is open state and open execution okay so open state means you don't just have the source code you also have the database hmm. okay so that's publicly visible now and open execution means you don't just have the source code and the database. You can trace through every single step that's happening. So let me give you an example. Um, you know, people wonder whether Twitter is filtering their searches, right? Uh, am I, you know, getting filtered or what have you? If Twitter was, and it's not possible today, but it might be possible. It probably will be possible in like ten years, maybe, maybe sooner. If Twitter was based on a blockchain-like backend you could inspect it for yourself or get a developer to to confirm that, oh, your searches aren't being filtered. Right. Okay. so that's actually really interesting where it's a stateful application that millions of people can write to and read from at the same time, yet it operates in a low trust way where Mm -hmm. essentially you can use computation to confirm that it's not biased against you. And in fact, that it cannot be biased against you because it's cryptographically guaranteed to not be able to be biased against you. And that's like a really, really powerful construct where essentially what we do is we trade um, computational time for trust because computational time has become cheaper, right? So you do essentially math that your CPUs can crank out uh, to replace or or reduce the need for human trust. You know, this has been an incredibly wide-ranging
1: discussion. Uh, and you know, we've talked. To, we began with um, with your background uh, in technology and business. We shifted over to the virus. We've talked now about these broader philosophical issues. Looking back on this, I'm not sure we could have done it any differently because you really are framing a different approach to management, a different approach to governance, a different approach to the way that we think about challenges uh, in the in the health and medical domain, but also more broadly. So, as we come to the close of this interview, could you start to sum up? Things that people can take away from this, and maybe other ideas that they should explore if they're interested in some of the topics that we touched on today.
0: Macro kind of points. Um, I think that uh, what what we're going to see is um, a centralized East and a decentralized West. Mm. So that's to say, um, I think that Asian countries will, by and large, probably be able to control the virus and keep their economies together. Um, with, with some exceptions, not 100%, but generally speaking. And then those that don't, China will export a green zone to them. That is to say, the most important export that China has now is its ability to turn something into a green zone. And by a green zone, I mean a place that has no new case of the virus for, let's say, the last four weeks. Okay. So it's a, it's a way to get the virus under control with testing and quarantine and lockdown and surveillance and so on and so forth. So any country that is a red zone. That wants to become a green zone can say, "Okay, hey, you know, China, you can put boots on the ground here. Um, just please fix my country." And so that's kind of like Belt and Road 2.0, okay? Where um, it's how China essentially expands into Africa, into Iran, into all these places where it already was was present. So the commons, you'll be able to like walk around in Asia, I think. Uh, in the West, I think we're going to get something very different, which is I have this one-liner. The virus breaks centralized states. So, if you've got a large centralized state that is simply not at the clock speed, doesn't move at the speed of the virus, um, you're going to face defection from within. Like, for example, there's individual Italian towns that are barring entry to people. Okay, and uh, you know this is happening I in mean, the U.S. also, Go ahead. I mean, that re- that represents a dramatic shift in the conception of the
1: nation state and the ability of federalized governments to actually implement, execute,
0: and manage. That's exactly right, and the thing is, you know, the, like if it's just one city that was doing this, you know, the other, like the rest of Italy, which is I don't know how many thousand cities, would provide the resources to tell that one city, no, you can't do this, right? It'd be n versus one. But when it's happening in every city at the same time, you know, things fall apart. The center cannot hold, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is happening in the U.S. too, by the way. There's like a North Carolina county that's like barring entrance. Sixteen states have had quarantine borders since like. Early April. I need to look at the latest numbers, but basically, interstate travel is harder than it's ever been before. Um, you have to basically stay 14 days, you know, as you go state to state. And so, what I think happens not, is not ever, apology, good. just just since 1865. Sure. Okay. Fine. You're right. Uh, I, you know, in fact, I'd say like maybe even 1789 or something. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. It'd have to be like Civil War level. Stuff, right? And Tyler Cowan's also observed this. He's talked about how we're basically returning to the Articles of Confederation. And, you know, confederation didn't used to be a bad word. It just meant that, you know, there was more devolution of power. Um, and that's basically what's happening. And that's how you're seeing Cuomo and others all talk about the 10th Amendment. The states are renegotiating their compact with the federal government. And essentially the U.S. is becoming a monetary union where the main thing that unites it is the dollar. And states are pursuing increasingly different policies on critical matters of you know, things like lockdown, which affect you know, the economy and health and so on. And they're just going their own way. right? And then so if, if the US is becoming the EU, and basically at least federating, uh, the EU is essentially, in my view, de facto broken up. Um, and the reason I say that is countries have you know, denied each other masks. They've denied each other aid. Uh, they've closed their borders to each other. Um, you know, this is something that was already shaky for the last ten years after the financial crisis. The Greeks versus the Germans, and back and forth for a while. Um, and you know, Hungary going and doing its thing. Uh, you know, obviously Brexit. There's a bunch of different countries that want to break off for a bunch of different reasons in a bunch of different directions. And what right. the, the whole thing reminds me of geopolitically, my macro view is this is similar to what happened in the '80s with um, the Eastern Bloc and the USSR. So they Kind of tottering over the course of the 80s, you know, you had Solidarity and you had Glasnost and Perestroika, and you basically, you know, you had the bread lines and essentially faith in the Soviet system seemed to be tottering, and then suddenly it all just came apart with the Berlin Wall in '89, uh, you know, the the break of the Eastern Bloc, and then eventually, um, you know, the, the fall of the Soviet Union by December 1991, the whole thing just broke apart, and that's I I, I think this is at that level. Um, I think this is something where, at a minimum, it's causing the breakup of the EU and the radical decentralization of, of the US into these interstate compacts. Those are like sci-fi headlines, by the way, You know, yes. right? like, like Gavin Newsom announces another two states joining the Western States compact. That's absolutely sci-fi headlines and will have medium to long-term serious consequences. Not necessarily all bad, by the way, because um, it could be that smaller states in this time are easier to manage and give you more options. You know, more more different modes of governance, more you know, different real things. We we're already going in this direction with sanctuary cities and and different gun laws and different marijuana laws. And this is that's the nth power. Right. Uh, and so so what we get. I think macro is you have the centralized east and you have a decentralized west where there's now maybe dozens of polities with different policies. And uh, then once we s- kind of stabilize, some of those will be green zones and some will be red zones, which have more or less control over the virus and also better or worse economies. Because anything that's become a red zone is a place where lots of people die, uh, where the economy is hit because there's lockdowns and shutdowns and social distancing and people fleeing. And red zones get burnt out like Detroit, or maybe not exactly at that level, but similarly. And green zones, by contrast, have lots of people who want to emigrate there, who uh, want to buy property there, who want to come there. Uh, and green zones will be very picky about which emigrants they let in with these immunity passports or other kinds of things.
1: As we come to a close here, you know, there are still a lot of people who are suffering with this virus, people who right. are suffering economically, obviously, the people who are yep. sick and who have lost uh, who have lost loved ones? In terms of framing out what you think, uh, insolation is the single most important thing that we can do uh, to really kind of attempt to either uh, solve the underlying medical problems that people are experiencing, which have been so terrible, and/or to attempt to get the economy back on track and moving sure. forward so that we can continue to build capacity to fight this virus and to support people's lives. What would you say to someone who asked you to answer that question? You know, in two minutes or less.
0: Sure. So I'd say um, we have to stop the virus. Uh, We shouldn't let it go to 100%. First, we should have expanded right to try, uh, such that states can rapidly approve tests, uh, vaccines, and drugs without going through the FDA. Second, um, states should close borders, and whether at the state or county level, should adopt a policy of lockdown until zero new cases, uh, after which they do test, trace, and isolate. Um, to uh, basically make sure that you know the that, that cases aren't just flying around. Uh, third, uh, you know, they should open up carefully with masks mandatory for everybody, uh, social distancing, um, with everything that they could possibly do in terms of telework, in terms of banning things like pin pads or other forms of contagion. Um, fourth, uh, they should basically the same right to try should accelerate drugs and vaccines. And fifth, we should take some of these you know, trillions of dollars in, in printed money and allocate it towards uh, prizes for vaccines, for masks, for this and that. Um, relatedly, sixth, we should remove price controls from these things because you know, this is not like a one-day thing like a hurricane where you can accuse somebody of price gouging or what have you. This is something where the economy is reallocating. And if you can't have if people are not allowed to make large amounts of money, for example, making masks or making drugs or vaccines, then they cannot hire lots of people and put them back to work. So it's actually really important that people be allowed to make a lot of money doing COVID response in order to hire people and put them back to work, uh, because otherwise, you know, you you get the the worst of all worlds, which is both the viral and the economic destruction. So, so that's the summary. Just to recap, a expanded right to try. B, Lockdown down until no new cases. C, test, trace, and isolate to, to keep cases down. Uh, D, accelerate drugs and vaccines. There's things called challenge trials, for example, that could accelerate it, um, where people are exposed to the vaccine or, or, or take the vaccine and are exposed to the virus on purpose to see if it works. Um, e, uh, make sure that um, you're giving prizes and things like that, allocating monies towards funding these novel technologies, and F, uh, Take away the price controls and other kinds of things that are restricting people from from getting the economy going again. So is there, that's like a two minute drill. I could do it much longer, but hopefully that's interesting. Yes, um, wonderful.
1: You know, we've barely scratched the surface here. I feel like we could go on for hours to talk about this. I hope you'll come back to talk about the broader framework uh, and uh, you know to get into some of the things that you think that the United States needs to do to become more competitive. It's been an incredibly interesting conversation. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Hey
0: there, since you got to the end, I'm guessing you liked the video. And that's probably because we don't just turn on a camera and film, we work really hard on getting the narrative flow just right. And that's why many finance companies are actually now hiring Real Vision to make videos for them. One of our recent client videos just hit 100,000 organic views on YouTube and there were no kittens in sight. So, if you want to find out how Real Vision can make a video for your company, just email us at customvideo@realvision.com. At You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads.